0: This topic has been near and dear to my heart for years. Uh, The background, uh, a good friend of mine, Terry White, we sat down one summer about 12 or 13 years ago and just kind of mapped out the book of Revelation. And I just got excited about it. And every time I'd hear something or read a quote or something that fit, I'd put it in my little file and over the years, it's just it's built, and I kind of you know mushed it into one little presentation. We're going to try to do the whole book in the next forty-five minutes or so, and we're going to go start to finish. Uh, signs of the time, second coming, and and uh, it's going to be a little fast as you can see, but it's good. We're really going to focus on these principles of application as we go through it. Just you know, how do we get ready for the second coming? Uh, so the thing that kind of intrigued me was this first chapter and third verse: "Blessed is he that readeth." and keepeth those things that are written therein, for the time is at hand. So, we're supposed to read the book of Revelation and keep the things that are in there. In other words, do something with the doctrines and the prophecies that are contained in this great book. Now, uh, doctrines or principles. As you read the book of Revelation, or any book of Scripture for that matter, there's two things you've got to ask yourself. Number one, what principles is the Lord preserving in this passage... And number two, what relevance does this principle have to me currently? And if you'll ask those two questions as you study scripture on your own, it will open up a whole treasure trove of information and doctrines, and most especially those principles of application. It'll bless your life. Again, what principles is the Lord uh, preserving in this, and what relevance is there for my life? Uh, The book of Revelation was written on the Isle of Patmos. John was, was banished here. Beautiful. It's off the, uh, the coast of Italy there. And um, we're not sure how long it took him to, to write this book. This revelation has different segments, so we assume it took more than just a few days. But as he saw different visions, he'd write them down. And yeah, later, as the Bible was uh, compiled, they, they saw and, and found his writings. I thought, you know, let's l- include this in this uh, sacred text. Now, to introduce it, I'm going to share a story. Now, here's the rule you can't say the name of the story yet, you're going to know it, a few of you. And you're gonna to want to blurt it out. Don't do, don't, don't say the name of the story out loud, okay? You'll be tempted. But again, don't say the name out loud. You'll you'll just be, ah, but don't <laughs> say it out loud. All right. Here's the story. Once per term, there was little girl who lived with her mutter in her ladle cordage offer ick offered log dodge florist. This little girl often worry ladle click with a rotten hut, and for disc raisin pipple caught a little rotten hut. Now, raise your hand. Don't say the name of the book, but do you even know what the story is? Oh, okay, I forgot. All right, looks like a half a dozen hands. Later at Rottenhut, here's the little basking winsome birder, butter and sugar cockles. Tickless little basking Tudor cordage for groin murder who lives on her upper side upper florist. Shake Lake dumb stopper launder rote, and yonder nor circumstances done stopper torque wet strainers. Now, at this point, who knows the name of the story? Okay, okay, oh, all right, we're about halfway there. Whole <clears> cake murder resplendent little rat <throat> rotten hut and his ladle basking unstuttered oft. On a road Tudor cordage over groin little rat rotten hut met a novelous wolf. How many of you know this story now? Okay, hands down. How many don't know the story still? Be honest. Anyone brave? Okay, I've got a few here, all right. Whale, 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 said this wicked wolf, effinescent little rat rotten hut. Where's her pretty little go going Wizard her little basking? On the count of three, say the name of the story. One, two, three. Red Hood. Perfect. How many times did I say Little Red Riding Hood? Zero, not once. But you were able to hear some phrases and sound. Oh, that's, oh and that's the big bad wolf, and here's the little... Uh, a little basket with some little brudder charcoal cockles, uh, <laughs> and all of a sudden, Book of Revelation is much the same way. You read it the first time, you're like, "What in the world is going on?" You read it a second time, and oh, maybe, maybe. Oh, and third time, oh, and all, and then fourth. As you read it, the more you read it, the more obvious the storyline becomes. Okay, so I'm going to show you what we've discovered in in our study. Now, it has its own outline. Revelation one nineteen. Uh, John is told, write the things which thou hast seen, write down the things that are, and write which shall be hereafter. So the things that thou hast seen, remember John was was an apostle, he saw the Savior. So Revelation chapter 1 is all about the Savior Jesus Christ. Write the things which are, that's chapters 2 and 3, that's the church history, the church happenings there in in Asia, what the seven branches are doing. And then write the things that shall be hereafter. That's chapters 4 through 22. These are the signs of the times of the second coming. Okay? So Revelation chapter 1 is all about the Savior. In fact, I tried to type up some of the different titles for the Savior found in Revelation 1. Uh, the faithful witness, verse 5. The ruler of the kings of the earth, uh, also in that same verse. He loves us. He's washed us from our sins in his own blood. The Alpha and the Omega. Uh, his head is the hairs of uh, white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were as the flame of fire, his feet like undefined brass, his voice as the sound of many waters. Uh, Again, all throughout chapter one, you're going to see the Savior repeated over and over again. This phrase, Alpha and Omega, is one that I particularly like about the Savior. Elder Holland teaches, these letters from the Greeks suggest the universal role of Jesus. He ought to be our Alpha and Omega in every choice we make. He ought to be the point of our reckoning. He should be the very bracket of existence. We should not stray outside him. I love that. So the first question for application is simply that. Do you feel like the Savior is at the center of your life? Is he your Alpha and your Omega? Do you begin your day centered on him? And do you end your day centered on him as well? Again, as we look at this book, we look for these principles of application. If we can do these little things along the way, we're going to be ready for his second coming. Okay? So, let's go to chapter 2, two and 3 next. Right, the things which are. Again, this is church history. There are seven churches. And uh, if you just look at chapter 2 and 3, the chapter headings, all the seven churches are listed. I just want to go over each one very quickly. Uh, The first book that is mentioned is Ephesus, and uh, it's interesting. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. This is the church that had forsaken its first love, okay? Forsaken its first love. None of you would ever forsake your first love, would you? I'm sure you've all fallen in love and married your first love, right? Oh, wait. You're all single. (laughs) Yeah. It's rare, and I think the Lord knows that. Uh, He knew that we would have different... uh, romantic interests, so to speak, during our mortal existence. He knew that we would obviously love the Savior. He'd be first and foremost in our mind. But along the way, we might be dissuaded to go and and pursue other interests, so to speak. Um, I love the story of of Peter and Jesus standing there on the banks of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, this is after the the crucifixion, and Peter decides to go out fishing. And you remember the exchange between him and and the Savior, right? Uh, Elder Holland wrote, Uh, Kind of making it more personalized for us, Peter, why are you here? Why are we back on the same shore with the same nets having the same conversation? Wasn't it obvious then and is it obvious now that if I want fish, I can get fish? What I need, Peter, are disciples and I need them forever. I need someone to feed my sheep and save my lambs. I need someone to preach my gospel and defend my faith. I need someone who loves me, truly, truly loves me, and loves what our Father in heaven has commissioned me to do. So, Peter, I'm asking you to leave all this and go and teach and testify. Labor and serve loyally until the day in which they will do to you exactly what they did to me. Again, this church in Ephesus left its first love. But we have all kinds of examples in our own life and the life even of of our apostles where they too were tempted to leave their first love. Are there any fish in your life? I mean, it's obvious that, that Peter didn't love fish more than Jesus. But for a moment, it seemed like there was something in his life, these fish, that looked like he might like them more than our Savior. Is there anything in your life that might make the Savior think that you love that thing more than Jesus? Next church, Smyrna. Uh, the devil shall send you to prison, ye shall have tribulation. That's in Revelation 2.10. It was prophesied uh, by John that they would have some tribulation and may even have to serve some prison time. Bishop uh, Polycarp is the bishop of this Smyrna first ward. I'm not sure if they called him wards, but it's, it, I mean, that's it. That's the Smyrna ward and he's the bishop, so he's the bishop of the, uh, the Smyrna first ward. Here's the story. Unwilling to bow to Caesar and to worship him, Polycarp was tried in the presence of a mob before the governor and told to curse Christ. His reply was simple. It should be 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The governor persisted. I have wild beasts. If thou repent not, I will throw thee to them. Polycarp replied, send for the beasts. Love that. Bring it. (laughs) Again, the governor spoke. If thou dost despise the wild beast, I will make thee to be consumed by fire. Polycarp courageously answered, why delayest thou? What you waiting for, right? Bring what thou wilt. The governor's messengers instructed the assembled multitude to burn him alive. Timber and kindling were brought, and Polycarp was thrown into the flames. So again, just as prophesied, this is the fate of, of this, this great bishop of of, uh, of this little city. We should be true at all times, in all things, and in all places, right? It's obvious in the book of Revelation, but obvious in our own lives as well. Um, we have a good stake president back home. Um, he was a convert from San Diego. Um, he, he joined the church when he was in high school, and now he, he's our stake president. And he says, the one thing that just irked him when he was, he was a, a teenager, when he went to... Uh, take the missionary lessons he says it was so funny because at church I'd go to church as an investigator and I'd hear all the you know you got to say your prayers and scripture study and I'd go to my friend's houses and they never did prayers never did scripture study or anything like it they lived the church you know church rules and standards on Sunday for three hours but once they got home they just kind of seemed to forget the rest of the week and he says it seemed kind of hypocritical to me and so I really wasn't interested in joining the church yikes Again, we've got to d- be true at all times, all things, and all places. Obviously, he had a, a conversion, my, my good stake president. Now, you know, obviously, he's the stake president. But, oh, do we ever have any of that in our lives? Where we go to church and, and we're there to kind of posture ourselves. We show up for church, but it doesn't last beyond the three-hour block. Again, all times, all things, all places. Uh, Pergamum is the next city. Um, they're told, seek for hidden manna. This is Revelation 2.17. Hidden manna has reference to the sacrament. Uh, you think of the symbols of the sacrament. We know the obvious ones with the bread and water, but there's others as well. I have a good friend whose grandpa passed away and uh, just recently. He said, he you had know, the most uh, profound experience with the sacrament at his grandfather's funeral. As he sat there during the proceedings, all of a sudden, he was in the chapel. And he looked up and saw the sacrament table, and he realized, you know what? The, the sacrament really is kind of like a memorial service for our Savior. He's passed away, and we're there every Sunday to commemorate and and give honor because of his death. And every single Sunday, we have a a group that prepares the body, just like they do when someone has passed away. That's the teachers. In every group, we have uh, some people assigned to be the pallbearers. He says, as he watched his little nephews hold that casket with arm bent, right, he thought of these deacons, these 12-year-olds, with their arms bent, bearing the body of our Savior, and then he said he was asked to give the family prayer. And he says, I was so nervous. I got to give the family prayer to my grandpa's funeral. I wanted to make sure it was just right. Perfect. This is my grandpa. I love him. I felt so much pressure to make sure it was perfect. And he said, every week we have these 16-year-old young men, the priests, and they're asked to say that perfect prayer as we commemorate the, the life and the, and the death of this perfect son of God. Again, seeking for hidden manna. How well do you prepare yourself to take the sacrament each Sunday? Do you really approach the sacrament as a funeral service for the good shepherd? You think of how carefully you plan to be at a funeral, what you wear, how you act that day. Do we come with the same preparation to the funeral service for the good shepherd on Sundays? If not, again, as we're looking to prepare for the second coming, maybe make the sacrament preparation a little more careful in your life. Next church, Thyratira. Thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication. Uh, It's interesting. Those that overcame Jezebel did so with the word of God. That's Revelation 2, 26 and 27. This Jezebel, I don't know who she is. Oh, man, she's got a reputation. (laughs) Uh, Do any of you know someone named Jezebel? Didn't think so. Yeah, (laughs) we have one. One. It's such a rare name because, well, she's famous for the wrong kind of things. Uh, (laughs) Uh, This Jezebel was a woman who called herself a prophetess, had a great following, and her goal was to make people feel like they should go and commit fornication. We don't want to make a list, but in your mind, you can probably think of modern-day Jezebels. Do we have women in our society who have a great following, and you can tell by the videos or the pictures they post online that their goal is to make people become sexually impure and immoral? Oh, man. How do we overcome Jezebel-like temptations? Well, it's with the, the Word of God. Are there any Jezebels in your life? Are you following anybody? In our modern day, there's all kinds of ways to follow people that are Jezebel-like. Is your study of the gospel each day enough to overcome those Jezebel-like temptations? Again, if these saints overcame Jezebel by the study of the word of God, our study of the word of God should be equal to that if we're going to overcome Sardis is the next city, and we're just going through these, these first seven really quickly. Remember, John writes to the saints in Sardis, what thou hast received and heard. Remember is such a powerful word. In fact, uh, it's been said by President Kimball that of all the words in the scriptures, one of the most important words could be the word remember. In the Book of Mormon, it's used 240 times. I love what Elder Iring, President Iring, teaches about this word remember. I don't know if you remember this story or not, but he says that years ago, he started writing down every single day how he'd seen the hand of the Lord in his life. Remember this talk that he gave? Every single day. He saw his dad do it. He carried on the same tradition. He hasn't missed a day. Every single day, no matter how tired he is, how long the day was, he writes just a sentence or two about how he saw the hand of God in his life. Now, would you want to be one of his kids, or grandkids, that gets to read that treasure? Oh, the question for application is, what do you do to remember the hand of the Lord in your life? Again, these, these saints in this city are told to remember and they'd be blessed. What do you do? Do you have a journal? I don't know, do you use Instagram? I know a lot of people use Instagram. They'll take a picture and write down a little thought for the day and an easy way to kind of document the hand of the Lord in your life. But I challenge you to find a way to document your dealings with the Lord every single day. It'll be a treasure to you and I promise later to your kids as well. Philadelphia, our modern-day Philadelphia is the, based on the same name. Um, John writes to them, Because thou hast kept the word of patience, I will keep thee from the hour of temptation. That's Revelation 3.10. The power of patience. Uh, President Uchtdorf, We live in a world offering fast food, instant messaging, on-demand movies, and immediate answers to the most trivial, profound questions. We don't like to wait. Or maybe you do. Anyone like to wait? Show of hands. Love to wait. Oh, I love to wait. Good. One hand. Uh, okay. You need some therapy. Uh, no, no. It's a great attribute. It really is. Uh, patience is a precious and rare virtue, as we just saw. It's a purifying process. Our Heavenly Father knows what every good parent comes to understand over time. If children are ever going to mature and reach their potential, they must learn to wait. Do any of you have kids or nieces or nephews that don't have patience? And their parents kind of feed that impatience by just giving them stuff all the time. "Oh. Is it tough to be around them? <laughs> okay, yeah,. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. How is your level of patience? Even in traffic? <laughs> oh, Okay,, you're like, never mind.. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. We're supposed to be patient if we're going to avoid the hour of temptation. Laodicea, this interesting city, um, he writes to it, Thou art neither cold nor hot, so because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Laodicea is a city that's made up uh, where, where two rivers come together. One is made up of hot springs, one river. The other is the cold natural spring that we're more, more accustomed to. By the time it reaches the city of Laodicea, it's tepid, and it's anything but refreshing or useful. You ever taken a bath in lukewarm water before? (laughs) It's the the most disappointing bath you'll ever have. (laughs) The Lord, I think, feels the same way about us if we're lukewarm in the gospel. He wants us hot or cold because then he can work with us. If we're just flimsy back and forth, there's not much he can do to help us. Uh, (laughs) Mary and G. Romney, there are those among us who are trying to serve the Lord without offending the devil... Uh, Elder Neil Maxwell, we can't keep a summer cottage in Babylon. We got to be hot or cold. Lukewarm doesn't work. So the application: What's your current gospel temperature reading? If you're hot or cold, you're great. <laughs> if you're lukewarm, well, go enjoy your own bath. Okay. <laughs> So, those are the seven churches, okay? So, we're up to three chapters now. We're going to fly through the signs of the times of the second coming, okay? So, again, chapters 4 through 22, write the things which, the, which shall be hereafter. So, the opening of the, the seals, okay? John is there in heaven. He's uh, seeing that the throne is surrounded by animals from other worlds. That's from Doctrine and Covenants, section 77. They have crowns on, but they throw them down at the feet of this man sitting on the throne, But then the crowns are returned in chapter 5, verse 10. It seems like an interesting dynamic. They have crowns on, they set them down, and then they're returned. I love the the symbolism here, though. Have you given your crown to the Lord? Wait, do I have crowns? Well, do you, for example, have a crown of popularity? I mean, do you naturally kind of draw people to you because of your, your personality or your looks? I don't know maybe a lot of followers on Instagram or Facebook, do you use that to build the kingdom of God? Uh, Do you have the crown of, uh, I don't know, fashion or creativity or, or intellect? Have you given it to the Lord? Have you taken those abilities and gifts that you're naturally blessed with and just said, Lord, here they are, whatever it is, they're yours. The beautiful thing is, again, when those animals give their crowns to the Savior, what does he do? He gives them back. And I picture him returning in a better state getting polished and buffed and they're a little bit shinier now you think your crowns are great now with with your followings or your skills or your talents oh turn them over to the lord let him polish them up shine it he'll return it and you will be amazed what the lord can do if you'll just let him work his magic This book is sealed with seven seals. Uh, The Lord's throne, you know, is is opening this book. It's surrounded by 10,000 times 10,000, thousands of thousands. That's Revelation 5, 9. There are so many people surrounding this event. I love it, though, because it gives us a lot of hope. Years ago, uh, well, every August, as Seminary Institute teachers, we have a training with one of the general authorities, usually an apostle. And this particular year, Elder McConkie was doing the training. And he asked a very, well... It seemed like a very benign question, but in reality, it was very instructive. He asked this group of professional religious educators which kingdom they felt would be the biggest. In other words, when all is said and done, after we're all assigned our degree of glory or outer darkness, where, which one will house the most people? And he made them vote. So just for fun, I'll have you do the same thing. So when all is said and done, in the end, do you think uh, that the telestial kingdom will be the biggest? Just show of hands, telestial, because there's a lot of sinners in the world, right? All right. Terrestrial, right? they're good people, blinded by the craftiness of men. That'll be the biggest. Celestial, all right. Outer darkness, okay, <laughs> all right, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> After the voting, this group of seminary teachers, the majority said the terrestrial kingdom. They said, Yeah, it's going to be the biggest because there's a lot of good people, but they're not making covenants and not interested in celestial laws. As they tallied the votes, Elder McConkie said, How dare you think that God will lose and Satan will win? All of a sudden, it was like, Oh, uh-oh. <laughs> uh oh. He said, God's work and his glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man, and he's good at what he does. He then went on to testify. He says, in my opinion, as an apostle, he said the celestial kingdom will most likely be the largest of the three kingdoms because God is good at saving his children, which gives us so much hope. Again, this throne surrounded by 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, Revelation 5, 9, isn't just written haphazardly. It is to give us hope that we're going to make it in the end, which I love. Is your view of God accurate, by the way, of that? I mean, do you really feel like God is rooting for you? Do you picture Him and our Savior and the Holy Ghost as your, your personal cheerleaders? I mean, just encouraging you and, and hoping and, and just wishing and doing everything they can do to help get you back safe and sound to Heavenly Father. I testify that's what they are. That is really our what our view of the Godhead should be. They're, they're rooting for us. So... In chapter 6, we have the seven seals overview. Revelation 6-2, we have these, uh, these four horsemen, right? The first horseman is, is riding a, a white horse, white symbolic of purity. That represents about 4,000 to 3,000 B.C. Now, whose days were filled with purity, the most pure ever? This should be easy. I'll give you a hint. It's the first seal. Who is it? Adam. Thank you. Adam and Enoch right in that first seal. The second horseman uh, riding a red horse Red represents violence. This is 3000 to 2000 BC. Violence, whose days were filled with violence, said the whole earth is filled with violence. Yeah, we got it, Noah. Third horseman comes along on this black horse, symbolic of starvation. This is 2000 to 1000 BC. Abraham and Joseph, those days of starvation and everything. Uh, Revelation 6, 8, this is the fourth horseman on a pale horse. Death is riding it. This is 1,000 B.C. to 0. Our institute student manual says that this is the days of Alexander the Great, that kind of intertestamental period with all the gladiators and death and lion den and everything else. Then we have the fifth seal. This is 0 to 1,000 A.D. Um, And then, obviously, these are the early Christian martyrs that died for the cause of Christianity. We're most interested in this sixth seal because this is kind of our day. This is 1,000 to 2,000-ish A.D., and this is our day. It's asked in Revelation 6.17, who can stand? Who's going to be able to survive the sixth seal? The answer is given in the next chapter, in fact, the first verse. I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. These winds are being held back. People are being protected. We love Helaman 5.12. If we're built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ our Lord, when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, his shafts and the whirlwind, they shall not have power to overcome you and drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe, if you're built upon that foundation. Great cross-reference. In fact, President Woodruff said, can you tell me who the people are who will be shielded and protected from these great calamities? Those who honor priesthood. None but those who honor priesthood will be safe from their fury. So our application question is simply that. Um, let me skip here. Do you sustain and honor the priesthood? Do you sustain the prophet apostles as prophets, seers, and revelators? Do you sustain your stake president, your bishop? Uh, you know, the word priesthood is interesting. Hood is in a state of being, right? Motherhood, childhood, neighborhood. It's people all have something in common. Priesthood means they all have something in common. They're all priests. Well, what does priest mean? In your Bible dictionary, you look up the word priest, and it says a priest is a mediator between God and man. So if you're a priesthood holder, you literally are in the state of being a mediator between God and man. You men in here that hold the priesthood, do you look at your priesthood that way? Your job is to be a mediator between man and God. As you participate in home teaching, as you officiate at the sacrament table, as you give priesthood blessings, that is your role as a priesthood holder. You are that mediator between man and God. It puts us in a pretty... Pretty special and, and humbling situation, doesn't it? Chapter 8, we have these six angels with six judgments. These aren't fun. First angel, hail and fire mingled with blood. Ew. <laughs> Seven angel, uh, second angel, a burning mountain is cast into the sea. Third angel, a great star falls affecting a third of fresh water. Fourth angel, a third of heavenly bodies turn dark. Fifth angel, the sun is darkened during a great battle. And then the sixth angel, there's a 13-month thir- war that, that raged. Again, these are all during the, the sixth seal. Uh, Doctrine and Kevin's 8888, I love this. After your testimony cometh wrath and indignation upon the people. For after your testimony cometh this testimony of earthquakes that shall cause groanings in the midst of her. In other words, the Lord is going to try his very minimum first. He's going to send out, well, it says your testimony he's going to have missionaries go out he said i'm going to have these young men and young ladies and i'll dress them up i'll put black name badges on them i'll even get the young men to finally cut their hair i'll make them look good and clean and i'll even send them to your door and if i just want you to listen i'll ask you to repent and i want you to listen but if you don't listen dnc 8888, and also this revelation chapter 8 says i'm going to call them home and i'll preach my own sermon and we're going to kind of turn up the temperature until we get to the point where finally you'll acknowledge that I am God and you'll feel a motivation to repent. So how much does it take to get you to repent? Can you have a good bishop just ask you to change your life a little bit and you're obedient to it? Does it take us to take President, maybe President Monson to stand up at general conference and ask us to do things a little bit differently? Or does it take a little more? A couple of storms, a little calamity, a little natural disaster, some disease, some death. He uses those, you guys, to help us to repent and acknowledge him as our true Lord and Savior, as our Heavenly Father. I asked this question at EFY once, and one of these kids, he's kind of clever, he raised his hand, he said, Brother Richards, I'll take a monsoon over a monsoon any day. I'm like, oh, uh, you're, you're clever. Uh, so hopefully we can repent quickly now three woes introduced and this is where the three appearances of the second coming introduced woe 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 unto the inhabitants of the earth this is revelation eight thirteen. the three woes represent the three appearances so the first appearance as you know is going to be at adam on diamond second one will be to the jews in jerusalem on the mount of olives and the third appearance will be his appearance to the world let's go through these real quick chapter 9 is the first woe and the first appearance during this first appearance we have these these wars It's interesting, in in Revelation 9, 7 to 10, there's all this description of of military equipment. Um, In fact, Elder McConkie, he says, It is not impossible that these ancient prophets were seeing strong armor and troops of cavalry and companies of tanks and flamethrowers, airplanes and airborne missiles. And as you read Revelation 9, he talks about, you know, they they sound like a a bunch of horses running and they've got like hair, like women flying around and... He's trying to describe these modern-day machinery, but you know, he's living back 2,000 years ago. For family night one night, I had my kids try to describe an iPod touch to someone that lived 2,000 years ago. And you know, they're so cute, "Well, OK, it's made out of plastic. Oh, 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 wait, what's plastic? Oh, OK. well, it has this glass window. Wait, what's a window? Well, okay, you, you plug it in. Wait, how do you plug something? In? And they tried every which way, and, and they were quick to realize, poor John. He did a good job. He did a good job trying to describe those, those uh, machines and methods of warfare. Now, before any appearance, uh, he's going to make some smaller appearances to the apostles and prophets, those that hold priesthood keys. Uh, we're going to talk about Adam and Monomin for a few moments. There, the sons of Levi will offer that final blood uh, sacrifice offering. Remember, this is the dispensation of the fullness of time. So part of that, we've got to bring back everything, including one last sacrifice. 144,000 sealed priests will be there. That's from Joseph Smith. Both men and women will be present. We can take our spouses. and, and uh, The righteous shall receive all the blessings of the temple, the fullness of the priesthood, and the second comforter. It's going to be quite a meeting. All governments will be part of the government of God, and a sacrament meeting will be held. We think about who's going to be at that sacrament meeting. Oh, can you imagine being a a ticket taker for that sacrament meeting? I mean, Enoch and Noah and Moses and Adam and Eve and, I mean, all the great. I mean, 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, both living and dead, are going to be there. Can you imagine passing the sacrament to that group? eh. Who are the speakers? If you're the bishop that Sunday... Who do you get to speak? <laughs> you know, our first speaker will be Moses talking about commandments, followed by Adam and then Eve talking about the fall. And then we'll have Abraham talk about sacrifice, and Joseph Smith will be our following speaker talking about the restoration of the gospel. We'll have an intermediate hymn by the, well, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, both living and dead. And, <laughs> and I mean, you talk about a sacrament meeting of all sacrament meetings. I, yeah. Who blesses the sacrament? Do we, would, could it be the Savior himself? Again, nothing's revealed on that, but DNC27 talks about the sacrament, and can you imagine hearing his voice offering those sweet and beautiful words of the sacrament there? I can't begin to imagine. Now, I don't know if we'll be there. I, I hope <laughs> maybe via satellite, at least, they kind of dedicate temples that way nowadays, so maybe via satellite, they'll, they'll pipe it in. And I mean, just picture the camera panning this audience. you know, I just, oh, man. Now, chapter 10 is a break. There's, an inter, there's a couple of interludes. This is the first one. It's the little book interlude. It's kind of John's mission call. Um, chapter 10, verse 8 9. Go and take the little book and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. Sounds kind of strange. But do we ever talk about eating books, sacred books, feasting? There you go. Feast upon the word. Are you feasting? Here's our, our application. Do you consider your scripture study today a feast, the one you had, your personal scripture study this morning, or are you still fasting? (laughs) When you have your scripture study or your family evenings or your Sunday school, do you come hungry, ready to feast? If you're a teacher, do you come with a banquet prepared for your students? Or is it, uh-oh, my alarm went off. Oh, better get this lesson ready. You spill milk over your manual as you're getting it ready because you've got to teach in about 15 minutes. Oh, we've got to make sure that we come as teachers ready to, to feed people, but also as students hungry. A hungry group, a hungry class can pull things out of a, a teacher that he had no idea were inside of him or her. It's amazing to watch what the, the power of a hungry group, what it can do to the teacher. It's absolutely amazing. Chapter 11 are these two witnesses. We're back to the story now. During these, uh, these battles and such, we have this, Revelation 11. They shall prophesy, speaking of these two witnesses, a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. If any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut the heavens that it rain not in the day of their prophecy. Uh, We have lots of uh, prophetic commentary that say these are two apostles. They're not missionaries. These are ordained apostles that are in the Holy Land that, well, they're going to go through this. Uh, Verse 7 of chapter 11. When they shall have finished their testimony, the beast shall ascend, uh, shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street. And the people shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not put them into graves and they shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another. They're celebrating the death of these two prophets or or prophets. Oh, it looks like it's over. I mean, they are celebrating and writing congratulatory notes and way to go and high-fiving and drinking and dancing and woohoo! we finally killed the prophets. It looks like we as Christians have lost. Elder Holland, quote, Remember to cling to your faith and hold on to hope. If the bitter cup does not pass, drink it and be strong, trusting in happier days ahead. Even if you cannot always see that silver lining on your clouds, God can. He is your heavenly Father, and surely he matches with his His own tears that his children shed. I hope you hold on to hope. Um, again, in this book of Revelation, it looks like it's over. Never give up hope. You're going to hear people in our latter days that are quitting the church. And you're going to hear media and and bloggers saying, oh, look at this. The Mormons, it's over. People are leaving the church in droves. The final outcome is determined. There's nothing more obvious as to where this church is going to wind up. It has been told to us prophetically and doctrinally what the ultimate outcome of this church is going to be. Uh, Do any of you like SportsCenter? I don't know if you like SportsCenter. Ever since I was little, I've loved SportsCenter. I wake up, I still watch it every single morning. And I love it because on the left side of the screen, they show the, uh, you know, what's coming up. At the bottom, there's a little ticker that shows you the, the scores, you know. And so I'll see my game, like, oh, oh, okay, Lakers won or whatever. But I love when the highlights come because I'm like, I, I watch highlights and the, oh, oh, you know, terrible pass. by the, Oh, and look at this. But I'm like, I know the outcome. I already saw the ticker at the bottom. I know who's going to win. And I love to watch the highlights because they'll try to set it up like it's going to be this, this terrible defeat. And all of a sudden, you I'm not surprised at the end. I'm like, oh, because I knew. Your little ticker at the bottom told me. <laughs> the scriptures the same way. We know what the outcome is going to be. There's going to be no surprise. The ticker is in the bottom of the scriptures. We know exactly the outcome. Please don't be surprised. Don't be alarmed. Don't be concerned. Don't be worried. Don't be preoccupied at all. The kingdom of God is going to triumph, period. In fact, let's watch what happens into the end of this story. <laughs> After three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and I love this understatement, and great fear fell upon them, which saw them. <laughs> wow, I, you know, again, picture yourself as one of these that just killed the prophets, and you've been parting for three days, and all of a sudden, they stand up on their feet. Wow, I uh, I am feeling great fear now. How about you? Well, yes, I am also feeling great fear. <laughs> no, this is like, oh, my word, what have we done kind of fear, and, They heard a voice, a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither, and they ascended up to heaven in a cloud. Now at this point, his feet, this is Zechariah chapter 14, shall stand in the Mount of Olives, and shall cleave in the midst thereof, towards the east and towards the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and they shall flee to the valley." This is during the Battle of Armageddon, okay? It starts there in the city of Megiddo. The word Megiddo is the place of troops. All nations are gathered together for this last battle, World War III, kind of, you know, the last and final battle. The soldiers total 200 million. That's Revelation nine 16. It'll take seven years to bury the weapons and seven months to bury the dead. That's Ezekiel chapter 39. It is a huge, massive war. Um, if you look in your map section, map B shows where the city of Megiddo is. That's where it starts. The Mount of Olives, you go down just a little bit on your map and over to the left, you'll see the Mount of Olives there on the eastern side of Jerusalem. That's where it ends. That's where Jesus stands on the mountain. Uh, DNC and 4551, Then shall the Jews look, as they're going through this escape route, as they're going through this valley, they shall look upon me and say, What are those wounds in thine hands and in thy feet? I will say unto them, These are the wounds with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. I am he who was lifted up. I am Jesus Christ who was crucified. I am the Son of God. Ezekiel 39 says, The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. In other words, the Jews will finally accept Jesus as the Christ, their Savior and Redeemer. They won't look at him just some great prophet or some great teacher that lived 2,000 years ago, but they'll finally realize that he is the Son of God. Oh, I can't wait for that day. That'd be fun to be a missionary, by the way, right? If you can't be at uh, Adam on Diamond, let's be a missionary during Armageddon, you know? Mm-hmm. Dear mission president, today I baptize the tribe of Judah. <laughs> Tomorrow I'm going after Zebulon or whatever, right? <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, I'm reading Ezekiel right now, and I was under the impression that it was referencing the destruction of the, the first time. So that, uh, the first time, yes. Yeah, we, are you reading the prophecy of the, the bones? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This one in chapter 39 is, is reference to the second coming. Joseph Smith, Bruce R. McConkie, Institute Student Manual, all kinds of commentary on that. You're, you're right on. Two, two different prophecies there. Spot on. Turn another hand here too. Someone's stretching. Yeah. I'm imp- you're reading Ezekiel? That's impressive. You're <laughs> a good boy. Yeah, you're, you're going to heaven. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. Chapter 12 is the kingdom of God. I love this. This is an interlude here. He goes now to the pre-earth life. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon was cast out. I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. I love that phrase, the accuser of our brethren. What an interesting title for Lucifer. Can't you see him up there accusing us Pointing his finger in your face. You think you can go down. You've lived this pre-earth life and you've made some not the best choices. You think you can go down, have a body, and live a good life. Every time you sin, you're going to repent. You really think you can do that. And him accusing our Savior, you think you can live a perfect life. Perfect. You can't, not even a, a, a bad thought. You can't even get mad at the church ball referee when he makes a bad call. A perfect life. The accuser of our brethren was cast down. Um, Al Fox, I don't know if you know Al Fox, great lady. Her her story, I was holding a a church book in my hands. It was a biography of one of the prophets. While I was waiting in line, I felt very tense. I could feel stares in every direction. They felt like lasers. I stood there stiff, trying to ignore, but I couldn't. I could physically feel the the stares from everyone. Finally, the guy next to me tapped me on the arm and said, you know, it's pretty ironic you look the way you do holding that book. She's a convert from New York, has tattoos. She's called the Tattoo, Tattooed Mormon, if you've heard read her blog. Awesome lady, by the way. Faithful as can be. Got sealed in the temple last year. Just as good, good as good can be. But some people can't accept her because she's got these tattoos from her past life. Stop the presses. We baptize them with tattoos, right? Oh, Elder Holland. Oh, okay, this, this is one of those applications that kind of hurts. If something is buried in the past, leave it buried. Don't keep going back with your little pail and beach shovel to dig it up, wave it around, saying, hey, do you remember this? Splat. Well, guess what? That's probably going to result in some ugly morsel being dug up about your landfill with the reply, yeah, I remember it. Do you remember this? Splat. And soon enough, everyone comes out of that exchange dirty and muddy and unhappy and hurt when what God pleads for is cleanliness and kindness and happiness and healing. Oh, You're not an accuser of your brethren, are you? We've got to be careful that we don't become judgmental as Latter-day Saints. We've got to refrain and let God judge. Great application there. Uh, <laughs> I love this. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Oh, We overcome Satan by sharing our testimony. President Uchtdorf, perhaps the Lord's encouragement to open our mouths might today include, use your hands to blog and text message the gospel to all the world. Uh, Elder Bednar, I exhort you to sweep the earth with messages filled with righteousness and truth, to literally sweep the earth as with a flood. Are you doing this? Again, application? President Monson tweets. Uh, <laughs> that's an odd sentence, but it works, right? You all understood it. I know a lot of people are, wow, well, I don't get into social media. and so-. Guess what? The prophets have asked us to. President Monson is... Following, well, I mean, well, it's funny. He has twelve followers. Uh, and it's it's. Uh, well, he's he's following twelve people. He's following the, the twelve apostles. I think is kind of funny. Uh, uh, you you can literally follow the prophet today uh, on social media and stuff. I, I hope you I hope you make efforts to share your gospel uh, on social media. Now, chapter thirteen, real quick. Kingdom of the devil. We have the six 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 this Mark. The Greek term for Mark is charagma. It's the brand a master places on an animal or a slave. That's what the Greek means. So we can spend all kinds of, what is the mark of the beast? But really, it's that mark that is placed in people that follow. Well, it says here, um, the mark left by a serpent's bite. So again, if we're dabbling in worldliness, I think we're guilty of kind of having, in some degree, that mark of the beast. Have you marked your life with indications of Christianity? If I were to walk into your house right now, could I tell that you're a, a Latter-day Saint? Do you have pictures of the temple, pictures of the prophet, things like that? Uh, how, how we dress. We've got to make sure that we have marked ourselves appropriately. Fourteen is the victory. I saw another angel fly, wrote John the Revelator, to preach the everlasting gospel unto them that dwell on the earth. President present says, that angel has come, it's Moroni. This is an interesting story. If you want to look it up, it's in the October 2007 Ensign. Uh, It began September 22nd, 1827. Now, if you're a church history buff, you know that date already. There's a guy named Heber C. Kimball wakes up in the eastern sky. He sees this this thing happening. There's this, like, rainbow and a cloud and this platoon marching across the sky. And his wife wakes up, and they look at it for almost two hours. They write down the journal, that is so strange. A couple miles away, there's another guy named Brigham Young, who wakes up, sees the exact same vision of this army. You could hear the implements of war and the jingling and jangling of of their weapons. And his wife, Miriam, wakes up, and they behold it for about two hours. Again, east to west. What is that? So a few years later, they both move to Palmyra, and uh, they meet a guy named Joseph Smith. He tells them about the gospel, and he starts going through the history of when he got the plates and everything. And all of a sudden, Brigham's like, "What day did you say you got those plates?" And he says, "Well, I got them on September 22nd, 1827." And he's like, and he was like, "Did you see something that night too, Brigham?" And again, they hadn't known each other beforehand. And all of a sudden, they started comparing notes, and they both had the same vision. And it's interesting; uh, these two are just a few days apart in age. So are their wives. They become best friends. They eventually, obviously, joined the church. They become sort of our great early church leaders. Who is leading that army, that host of, of angels across that, that eastern sky? It's Moroni. He's going to make sure that once Joseph gets those plates, they're going to be safe and sound. They've been buried for all those years, and he's not going to let them fall into enemy hands again. And so he's there that night with the boys, so to speak, to make sure that Joseph gets those plates back safe and sound. I love that, that beautiful angel Moroni. 15 and 16, won't spend a lot of time on. It's just the seven angels and their terrible plagues. Um, we got a, a plague of sores. We got the sea turning to blood. Fresh waters become blood. The sun scorching men with great heat. Men gnaw tongues for pain and blaspheme God because of their sores. And then a great five-month battle and then a great earthquake with hail again. The Lord likes hail and stuff. Uh, seven plagues here. He's asked us to make sure we're prepared and that we don't, according to Revelation 16, 15, don't walk naked lest they see his shame. Now, as Latter-day Saints, when we talk about nakedness and stuff, we think about how we are clothed, not just on the outside, but our second layer as well, with the temple garment. Jesus said, Tarry ye in Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. The Greek definition is to sink into a garment. The word endue or endow means to sink into a garment to take on the characteristics and virtues of another. When President James E. Faust was interviewed to be a member of the first pre, uh, of the, uh, Apostleship, he sat down with Harold B. Lee, and he was asked one question, do you wear the garment properly? And of course, President Faust said, yes, I do. And Elder Lee said, thank you, you passed the interview. And Elder Faust is like, ah, okay, that's, that's it? And he says, yeah, I've come to find out if someone wears the, the priesthood garment properly, That tells me everything else I need to know about their life. So if if you have been endowed, do you properly wear that garment? Do you take care of it as it should be? If you're not endowed yet, is your wardrobe currently ready to be a temple-type wardrobe? Great application. Chapter 17, Satan's kingdom. Oh, it's going to fall. There's this great whore that sits upon many waters, whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication with, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness for her fornication. Oh, this nasty lady. She really is. (laughs) (laughs) Elder McConkie says about her, well, the application here, all the governments of the earth are in league with this great whore. Uh, From time to time, they do such things as... Now, just think in your minds. Does this happen today? Prohibit the worship of God. Deny freedom of religious belief to their citizens. Fail to guarantee the free exercise of conscience. Enact laws which curtail the agency of man. Require the teaching of false principles in their educational system. Deny the representatives of certain churches the right to teach their doctrines. Fail to punish crime and protect the rights of their citizens. Oh, This great whore is on the earth today, and she is persuading governments to enact legislation that's preventing us from worshiping how and where and as we might. Are you active in the political process? I hope you vote. I hope you study the candidates. I hope you try to put people into positions where they can make good decisions based on our Christian values. I think it's part of the preparation for the second coming. Again, this kingdom's destroyed. Chapter 18 talks about the destruction. The Lord says in chapter 18, verse 4, uh, come out of her, my people. Don't linger, because it's falling. If you're in Babylon, you need to leave. Have you surrendered yet? As the Lord calls you out of Babylon, do you flee? Do you run? Is there any Babylon in your life? Because once that kingdom falls, chapter 19 is his appearance to the world, the third woe. Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven open, behold a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. His eyes were as a flame of fire, on his head were many crowns, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. Word of God, word, expression. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. He literally is the expression of God. Now, when he comes, remember, the righteous will be caught up to be with him. 2 Thessalonians and DNC 45, all the saints of the celestial will be caught up to be with him in the clouds. The leftovers, the remnant, the Telestial will get burned. The question is, why burning? That, that wow, that's, that's pretty heavy, right? Malachi 4.1 says this For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud and all they that do wickedly shall be as stubble. There's two groups that will be burned all the proud. How do you define pride? Well, it's putting your will against God's will. He says, A, you do B. It's your will in front of his will. That's the definition of pride. We've got to be exactly obedient. All they that do wickedly. Now, the footnote, do wickedly, a little superscript letter E, look down at the bottom of the page, it says sexual immorality. So that's the other qualifier. I don't know if you're trying to get burned, but if you, know, uh, if you want to, those are the two things. Be prideful. And, and be immoral and <laughs> break out the marshmallows or whatever. Uh, it, that's the group that is at most at risk for, for enduring those flames. Are you free of pride? Oh, Do you control your ego? Whenever there's strife, there's ego. Man, you want to eliminate strife in your life? Just get rid of your ego. Are you free from immorality? If you are, you're on the, the right path. The millennium begins in chapter 20. I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit, a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold upon the dragon and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. (laughs) Love Can't you just, you just shut up. And finally, he is shut up. I just can't. Shut up. Stop it. Knock it off. Shut up. I can't wait. I can't wait. I love 1 Nephi 22, 26, though. Because of the righteousness of the people, Satan has no power. Do you have to wait for the millennium to shut him up? As soon as you're obedient to Christ, Satan has no power in your life. When Satan is bound in a single home, this is President Kimball, when Satan is bound in a single life, the millennium has already begun in that home and in that life. Shut up. (laughs) Are you making choices in your life that bind the influence of the adversary? Or do you let media and peer pressure have him a placehold in your life? Oh. Final judgment occurs, right, in, in Revelation chapter 20. We'll be judged, brought before the judgment bar of God. Um, Elder McConkey has something interesting. What is the book of life? He answers this question. Because I always pictured a physical book, you know, open up, you know, and all these writings, there's dust and everything. And he writes, the book of life is the record of the acts written in the In our own bodies, engraven on the very bones, sinews, and the flesh of the mortal body. That is, every thought, word, and deed has an effect on the human body. All these leave their marks, marks which can be read by him who is eternal, as easily as the words in a book can be read. You are the book of life. He can look at you and tell that fast what kind of person you are, what kind of life you've lived. You see, it's not how much good, how much bad, where the judgment scales are. It's what have you become? What have you literally turned into that will determine which kingdom we go to? And to be very, I mean, it's so simple. If you love celestial laws, you love to keep celestial laws, you love scriptures, love the church, love the gospel, love the prophet, and you are obedient, celestial kingdom. If you're a good person, but you don't want to keep those celestial laws, terrestrial kingdom. If you love to sin. T-shirt, i love to sin, you know. Uh, telestial Kingdom, they love it, they love it, and they'll be happy, they'll be all their sinner buddies and everything, and uh, out of darkness, they want to crucify Jesus again, or afresh. Uh, the most evil, vile, wicked sinners, deny the Holy Ghost, but crucify Jesus again if they had the opportunity. Do you know where you're going? You kind of know, you kind of know right now by the life you're living. Um... Have there been any sins in your life that should have been cleared with priesthood leaders but have not been? I want to make that final judgment so easy on me and on the Savior. I don't know about you, but I'd like it to be a very comfortable situation. I don't want to be surprised uh, at the final judgment. (laughs) And I want to make it easy on my Lord. I want him to see who I am and what I've become. Uh, Will there be any surprises at at the final judgment? Anyone feeling ripped off? Anyone feel surprised? Oh, me, me Celeste? I had no idea. No. We'll know. The Olympic Games, for example. back Michael Phelps, right? I, I, I swam and played water polo in, in high school and college and stuff, and I, I love swimming. And um, When they put the, the medal around his, his neck, was he surprised at the color of the medal? looks down. Oh, gold. Check it out. I had no idea. Gold. No, the race was over. This is just the awards ceremony. Final judgment, guess what? The race is over. All that's left is the award ceremony. What kind of body you get, okay? The earth is going to become exalted. This is where we will end. I saw new heaven and new earth. I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. God himself shall be with them and shall be their God and shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and they shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. The Lord has invited us so often to enjoy this now, even in mortality. Come unto me, all ye that are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Cast your cares upon him, for he careth for you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Elder Holland, I submit to you that the that may be one of the Savior's commandments that is even in the hearts of the otherwise faithful already saints most almost universally disobeyed. I am convinced that none of us can appreciate how deeply it wounds the loving heart of the Savior of the world when he finds that his people do not feel confident in his care or secure in his hands or trust in his commandments. Let him give you peace and rest. Of course, we have that last battle, right? The last chance in DNC 88 talks about this. Satan gathers his armies, and we have Michael, who is Adam, gathering his armies in that last battle to declare our allegiance one final time. The future of this world, Road Elder Holland, has long been declared. The final outcome between good and evil is already known. There is absolutely no question as to who wins because the victory has already been posted on the scoreboard. The only thing really strange in this is that we're all down here on the earth trying to figure out which team's jersey we want to wear. Uh, Do you want to be on the winning team or losing team? (laughs) Uh, Tough choice, right? Oh, man. And this is it. We are to heaven. Revelation 22. He showed me a pure river of water, of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God. In the midst of the street of it there was the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruit. And there shall be no more curse, for they shall see his face. There shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither the light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So, let's bring it all home to us. How do you know if you're prepared for the second coming? DNC 45. They that are wise have received the truth and have taken the Holy Spirit to be their guide. They shall abide the day, right? Talking about the ten virgins, right? How many were there? Ten. Good. How many are wise? Five. How many are foolish? You know the story. How many had oil? All ten. How many had enough oil? (laughs) Only the five. How many were sleeping when the bridegroom came? All of them. All of them. Only five could wake up and go. What does the oil represent? In fact, I just said it. They that are wise have received the truth, they have a testimony, and have taken the Holy Spirit as their guide. If you have a testimony, and if you have the Holy Ghost in your life, you're ready. If the Holy Ghost is with you, and again, every application we've talked about tonight is so that you can have the Holy Ghost in your life. Those small and simple things we went through this evening They're there to help us receive the Holy Ghost so that he can guide our lives. I promise you can know if you're ready. The Holy Ghost is with you. Do you feel those burnings, the stupors of thought? Do you feel that joy and love and peace and happiness, the fruits of the Holy Ghost? If so, I testify you're ready. He is your guide. I testify that Jesus lives. He's coming. I invite you. Get ready. Make little choices, little little adjustments every day. And over time, you're going to find yourself more and more prepared. I testify he is coming, and you can be prepared by making those good decisions. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. by a prayer, by Preston, which will be right now. (laughs) (laughs) I know you wanted to talk. Our uh, very gracious Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we can come together to be edified mutually by the Word of Thy Son. Find courage to be obedient, to be worthy of Thy blessings. Please protect us and guide us during the week that we may apply the principles we've been taught. We love you so much.